Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, and today's program is titled Advances in the Treatment of Metastatic Prostate Cancer, and this is part one of a two-part series on living with prostate cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and those organizations include both general cancer organizations and prostate-specific organizations, including ProstateNet, Prostate Cancer Foundation, us to International Prostate Cancer Education and Support Network, and Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer, and Male Care. And so we are very appreciative of that collaboration. And really because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today, we have over 722 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. And it really is amazing to have so many of you on the call and from all over the world. Um, as well as the United States as well. So it's a bit of a global call. And today's program is supported by Pfizer, Genomic Health, Inc., Estella Scientific and Medical Affairs, Inc., and Medivation. And I really want to thank them for their support of this two-part series, as well as their collaborative effort in making this program possible, their collaboration in terms of their source of support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. She's also a professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven is going to be addressing advances in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, current standard of care, and the role of chemotherapy. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thanks, Carolyn, and good afternoon to everyone. I'm once again charged with uh, updating you on some of the new treatments that we have in prostate cancer, particularly in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. Metastatic disease, as many as you know, means disease that's not confined to the prostate itself, but has traveled beyond the confines of the prostate to other structures in particular, and probably more commonly, bone and lymph node. What's happened over the last several months to years is that we have new drugs, and these new drugs have improved both the quality of life and disease control, probably more superiorly than we ever have seen before. Now, what's very interesting is that metastatic disease can occur at presentation, meaning that the patient has disease that's traveled outside the gland to other structures at diagnosis, or patients can have localized disease that has been treated with surgery or radiation or both that has subsequently progressed to other structures much later on. What's particularly novel these days in patients who have metastatic disease at presentation was actually based on a very large phase three trial that uh, was 
but actually led to the approval of a new approach. So for patients who have metastatic disease at presentation, particularly in bone, the use of hormonal therapy has been standard for many years. And that usually means using an injection such as what we call a GNRH agonist or GNRH antagonist, meaning two, br two drugs that tell the brain not to send out a signal to the testes to make the male hormone testosterone that feeds the cancer. Now, what's very interesting is that the addition of a standard chemotherapy called docetaxel or taxotere, which has been approved for prostate cancer that has failed hormones and subsequently metastasized, was then brought to the earlier part of the treatment arena. And what that means was that patients who had metastatic disease to bone, and in particular those men who had greater than four metastatic lesions that were seen on bone scan, were found to derive significant benefit in terms of the disease control if they received the combination of chemotherapy and hormones compared with hormones alone. Now, mind you, this approach is not for every patient who has metastatic disease. You wouldn't do it particularly with somebody who had lymph node disease, and you might not consider doing it in somebody who has one or two lesions, but there are patients whose bone scans show significantly heavy deposits of uh, cancer in different bony structures and therefore it would offer a benefit. So you have two new approaches in that regard in that it's really the doctor in discussion with the patient to make that decision. The other approach that just came out of our national meeting just about a week ago is the use of what we call an AR-directed therapy, androgen receptor therapy, a pill, a hormone, if you want to call it that, called abiraterone or Zytiga. This is a pill that has been FDA approved for the last several years and has been approved in patients who have failed prior chemotherapy. It's been used in patients who became resistant to their hormonal therapy, but now for the first time and per the recent presentation at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, this drug has been shown to have significant benefit in patients who have metastatic disease, a diagnosis when given in in combination with hormonal therapy. So now doctors are faced with the challenge of who should get the chemo and hormone combination versus the abiraterone or Zytiga hormone combination. They both appear to have significant benefit in terms of disease control. The side, uh, side effect profiles are different, but nevertheless this, alters, this offers another strategy that may be very helpful to contain the disease. And therefore, should you have questions about this or read about this in the newspaper, obviously this is something that you would want to discuss with your doctor. For patients who have metastatic disease and have failed hormonal manipulations, we again have a variety of different treatments that are still actively in use. We have the first immune therapy that was ever approved by the FDA, which was called Cipolusal P. The other name for it is Provenge. And this is a cellular product therapy that is derived from your own cells. Your own immune or white cells are removed via a machine that then processes your blood and removes some of the white cells but still returns your plasma 
and red cells back to you. These cells are immediately shipped to a central facility where they are co-incubated or cultured with a particular protein known as prostatic acid phosphatase. Uh, this is the product is then reprocessed and returned back to you 48 hours later for administration as three individual intravenous infusions given two weeks apart. I won't go through the details in terms of the pros and cons of this treatment. Nevertheless, it remains in armamentarium for patients who have minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic disease following hormonal treatment. We can still use other hormonal therapies such as enzalutamide or abiraterone. These are both hormonal therapies that have a unique mechanism of action and target the androgen receptor, what we call AR, that is the molecule on the tumor cell to which uh, the uh, testosterone uh, molecule is directed. Now keep in mind that those patients who are on hormonal therapy are aware of the fact that their blood level of testosterone is very low. What people don't realize is that as the cancer progresses, the cancer cells themselves start to actually produce testosterone. And that testosterone starts to stimulate the cell that produces it. It's sort of like a dog running around trying to trace its tail in that testosterone binds to a particular site on that same cancer cell and what we call auto-stimulate. So these two drugs work mechanistically to try to stop that in the setting of blood levels of testosterone that we already know are very low. So you get a much more complete blockade. For patients who have some symptoms associated with their cancer, particularly in the setting of progressive disease in bone, radium-223, otherwise known as Zofigo, X-O-F-I-G-O, has also become a standard of care. This drug can be given intravenously, monthly, for a total of six months, and it is literally a form of radiation that is used to target actively growing cells in the bone that are causing the bone to be weakened, and particularly since they're cancer cells. Oddly enough, radium-223 is not new. Mary Curie discovered this in the, the turn of the 1900s. However, it's been well studied now and appears to have a very good safety profile and therefore can be used repeatedly on a monthly basis. We still have other treatments. And these treatments can be brought earlier into the clinic or later in terms of disease. The standard of care, as many of you already know, is docetaxel or taxotere, a chemotherapy that can be given intravenously every three weeks. It has a very good safety profile, but should this drug not work, one could still give drugs like enzalutamide or abiraterone, or there is an FDA-approved second treatment, another chemo called cabazitaxel, whose side effect profile is equally safe. Those remain the standards of care. We do know that chemotherapy can now be integrated earlier or later in the disease. Uh, very often patients, my, my own rationale for giving people chemotherapy really depends on what we call a performance status. Is this somebody who is very debilitated and weak, they can't eat, they just feel sickly? Another indication is somebody whose PSA is doubling or tripling or quadrupling so fast that no drug seems to be working. And a third 
scenario is somebody who has a lot of pain. They might require a significant amount of radiation to control the pain along with opioids, uh, analgesics. And sometimes just giving chemotherapy can actually not only improve quality of life, but in control the disease to the point that the patient can become very functional and still get, get uh, have the ability to travel and do family outings and things they usually like to do. This is not uh, a update really on the newest drugs that are out there. There's still more to be discussed that will be at another uh, cancer care seminar, but I hope that uh, this is helpful to you all. And with that, thank you very much for being attentive, and back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was outstanding. Really, thank you so much for really setting the stage for today's program and identifying really the treatment, the standard of care for people with uh, living with metastatic prostate cancer. And our next speaker is Dr. Alan Bryce. Dr. Bryce is Vice Chair, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He's Director, Genomic Oncology Service, Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And Dr. Bryce is going to address the role of precision medicine, new treatment approaches and clinical trials, and communicating with your healthcare team about managing symptoms, side effects, and quality of life concerns. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bryce. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, everyone, for being on the call today. Uh, as I think you all well know, there's a tremendous amount of momentum right now in prostate cancer and progress, and uh, so it's actually uh, you know always a pleasure to talk about uh, what's new and what's going on. Certainly one of the pillars of progress in cancer care right now is what we call precision medicine, which, which goes by a number of names. But what, whatever you call it, what we mean by this is the increasing ability to analyze an individual patient's tumor down to a level of detail where we can start to prescribe treatments that are much more specific to the individual patient. In a traditional model of medicine for the last century or so, we would do large clinical trials and enroll several hundred patients, and at the end of it, uh, say that, well, our, uh, treatment A versus treatment B gives us these results and a certain percentage of patients benefit, then they live for a certain amount of time. But in this area of, era of precision medicine, we're trying to be able to tell up front exactly which patient should get treatment A versus treatment v, B versus treatment C and on down the line based upon precisely or intimately understanding what's driving the individual cancer. So when you hear uh, people talk about this or you read about it or you speak about it with your physician, most of the time what we're talking about is trying to understand the genetics of the cancer because at the end of the day, all cancer is a genetic disease. It's a disease where a healthy cell, your regular normal cell, has mutated at a genetic level and become something different, become a cancer cell. And so the hope, at least, is that we can identify the particular mutations in each individual cancer and translate that into a plan of action for treatment. There are various tests that are done to try and achieve this. Uh, there are companies that have assays that your physician might send your tumor out to to get tested. Some Hospitals such as Mayo Clinic would have in-house testing. And there's a whole range of different tests that might be done, the details of which I won't go into because it's a lot of, uh, of minutiae, I think, in terms of detail. 
But regardless, the idea is to accelerate new treatment development to improve the outcomes for patients and hopefully to expand the list of potential treatment options beyond the very narrow focus that, that we've been that we've been forced to live with, I think, for the last, you know, several decades. Precision medicine is already having an impact in prostate cancer, certainly. Uh, the most visible example of this right now is with everything you hear about with the use of PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer. So PARP inhibitors have been initially developed as treatments for women with breast or ovarian cancer who have mutations in a gene called BRCA. And yet those of us who research prostate cancer have known for many years that these same mutations and these same genes are present in prostate cancer patients. And so it took quite a while to eventually win the argument that these drugs should be tested in prostate cancer, but the early results are very promising, and we're seeing dramatic responses with the use of this class of drugs. More importantly, what this has done is it's stimulated large-scale research to try and understand how often these mutations are seen in prostate cancer. Because in the old days, by which I mean only a few years ago, people would believe that perhaps only 1% to 2% of prostate cancer patients had these mutations. But in fact, now what we recognize is that as the cancer becomes more aggressive and you move from prostate cancer in the prostate to metastatic disease, that the frequency of these mutations go up. And now we're at a point where we think perhaps as many as a quarter of all patients will have mutations in this family of genes that can predict for response to these PARP inhibitors. So clinical trials are now going on across the country with uh, multiple different PARP inhibitors, and we believe that this will be another avenue for precision treatment of prostate cancer patients in the near future. Quite apart from that, there's a long list of other drugs that are active in other cancers that are being brought into the prostate cancer realm. So this is very much about new treatments and about clinical trials. And I would say that we are we have in the beginning of an era where this kind of profiling of tumor cells is really much a, a standard approach. And then to wrap up in the last few minutes here, the, the topic of communicating with your health care team about managing symptoms and quality of life. You know, it is uh, without question fundamentally important that there be open communication between the patient and the physician about symptoms. When we deal with cancer, the, the great difficulty we have here is that the cancer cell at the end of the day is still your cell. And so it's difficult, if not nearly impossible, to find a treatment that will only affect the cancer cell without affecting the rest of the body. There's almost always going to be some degree of side effects, and discussing this openly with your physician is, is fundamentally important to getting the best outcomes and maximizing quality of life, which is absolutely you know, the goal of everything we do is to give maximum quality for the maximum amount of time. There are different ways to access your healthcare team, whether it be your physician, whether it be an advanced practitioner, a pharmacist, a nurse, you know, the, the, the entire spectrum of, of the team. And depending upon where you're being treated, there might be other physicians involved. Here at Mayo, we frequently involve our palliative medicine team, who are symptom control experts. We involve nutritionists. 
We involve integrative medicine specialists who uh, can bring into the um, equation things like nutrition, uh, yoga, acupuncture, and other symptom control uh, methodologies. There's been data recently presented at one of our big cancer conferences showing that patients who get more active intervention, greater active intervention of their symptoms, actually end up with better long-term outcomes. That is, they end up getting more therapy because the therapy is less toxic because the symptoms are being actively managed. So I'll wrap up there. I will, I'll be on the call later uh, to take questions. Hopefully this was helpful to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bryce. That was really outstanding um, as well. And actually, um, I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A, um, just really um, very informative. And also, really, how carefully you explained the concept of precision medicine and how it applies to the treatment of prostate cancer. So thank you so much. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Marissa Colmayer. And Dr. Colmayer is attending radiation oncologist Department of Radiation Oncology Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Colmayer is going to address the role of radiation therapy, including types of radiation treatments, update on the treatment of bone metastases, and managing discomfort and pain. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Colmayer. Hi. Thank you so much uh, for that lovely introduction, and thanks for, for having me um, on this teleconference. It's incredibly important to get this information um, to those who need it. Um, radiation therapy is a um, sort of a black box, and I'm, I'm very happy to be here to sort of clarify um, and explain um, all of the different uh, treatment approaches and techniques and types of radiation treatment that are available, because um, there's an increasing amount of technology that is improving the radiation therapy field, and um, sometimes it can be quite challenging to differentiate. Radiation therapy plays a role for, for prostate cancer really at, at all stages of disease, from local treatment um, to uh, node-positive prostate cancer um, to radiation therapy for biochemical recurrence following surgery, uh, as well as uh, for the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer when prostate cancer is spread to other areas. Um, radiation therapy is a um, scary term, but basically what it is is the use of radiation or x-rays uh, to damage the DNA of cancer cells uh, and halt or slow the growth of tumors. There are multiple types of radiation therapy, although the most common type of radiation therapy used is called external beam radiation therapy, uh, which uses photons or x-rays. Uh, these x-rays are similar to a chest x-ray or uh, uh, other kinds of x-rays uh, that are used for diagnostic purposes, but they have a higher energy, and that's what uh, allows them to be able to damage the DNA of cancer cells, basically by creating oxygen-free radicals, which then go on to damage the DNA. It's typically given as an outpatient treatment um, and usually as a regimen of a daily treatment delivered on multiple consecutive days. Uh, the number of treatments that one may receive when uh, receiving a radiation course can vary from 1 to 20 treatments or more depending on the location of the tumor and the specific clinical situation that uh, the radiation therapy is, is treating. Another type of radiation therapy is called proton therapy, which uh, is similar to photon or x-ray therapy. However, rather than x-rays, it uses a charged particle to deliver the therapeutic radiation. Uh, 
Uh, there are advantages and disadvantages of proton therapy. One of the advantages of proton therapy is that uh, as the um, charged particle is traveling through tissue, uh, it uh, um, does not deliver a lot of radiation dose as it's entering um, or exiting. Uh, and that can provide some advantages in terms of sparing normal surrounding tissue uh, around a tumor. The disadvantages of, of proton therapy are, one, that it's not widely available, um, although that's changing. Um, and also it does require the tumor to be relatively um, static in terms of the position in the body. So if there's motion of a tumor because of breathing or any other kind of um, internal organ motion, um, it can be challenging to deliver the radiation therapy accurately. Um, <clears throat> one of the main advantages of proton therapy is when we're giving additional courses of radiation after a, an initial course. So if somebody is receiving a second or even third course of radiation to the same area, protons may have an advantage in terms of uh, protecting normal surrounding tissue. Finally, a third type of radiation is called brachytherapy. Brachytherapy is basically the implantation of radioactive sources, either permanent or temporary, uh, directly into tumors. The advantage of a brachytherapy-based treatment approach is that uh, we can place the radiation directly where it needs to be inside the tumor and irradiate the tumor from within. This allows us to deliver the absolute minimum dose of normal uh, of radiation to the normal surrounding tissues and allows us to protect tissues quite um, uh, easily. Brachytherapy is a common treatment for localized prostate cancer or prostate cancer that has recurred after an initial course of radiation therapy. So there's some specific advantages of brachytherapy. We just heard some of the exciting data from trials exploring systemic therapy for metastatic prostate cancer, which is prolonging the life of our patients. For many decades, the gold standard of therapy for metastatic prostate cancer has been androgen deprivation therapy alone or hormone therapy alone. However, clearly this landscape is changing uh, dramatically. In addition, the role of radiation therapy for metastatic prostate cancer is also changing. Last year, there was a large study uh, using uh, the National Cancer Database, which is a large cancer registry, including more than 6,000 patients with metastatic prostate cancer who received either, either androgen deprivation therapy alone or androgen deprivation therapy with radiation therapy directed to the prostate. Uh, and in the patients who receive radiation therapy to the prostate in addition to, to androgen deprivation, there was a, a prolonged overall survival benefit. This is um, relatively preliminary data, however, very exciting and, and certainly additional studies uh, need to be uh, performed to confirm uh, that local therapy, even in the setting of metastatic disease, uh, plays an important role. And ongoing trials are, are, are happening now. As far as radiation therapy for the treatment of bone metastases, radiation therapy plays a very important role in this particular uh, um, situation. It's often given to, uh, as a treatment to ease the, the symptoms of tumors, whether that's pain, uh, nerve irritation, uh, obstruction of the bowel, or other types of uh, symptoms that can occur when tumors grow near other organs. And it can be used in various locations of the body. 
Perhaps the most significant advance in radiation therapy is is the technological advances that we've had over the last five to ten years uh, using image-guided radiation therapy. Image-guided radiation therapy, or IGRT, is a fancy term, but basically what it means is that we have the ability to perform a CT scan or an MRI scan directly on the treatment machine in the treatment position, uh, which means that we can see and target tumors more accurately. This has allowed us to deliver uh, safe uh, safe doses uh, to uh, tumors um, and allows us to give higher radiation doses to tumors as well, with a simultaneous decrease in the dose to the normal surrounding tissues. This has allowed both a high dose delivery and fewer treatments to be delivered, uh, which has enormous advantages for patients. In the past, a typical radiation course for uh, bone metastases would be 10 treatments Monday through Friday. Uh, Now we're able to deliver for some patients treatment in one or three days. Um, Additionally, we are seeing better control of tumors when we give higher doses um, than in the past when we gave lower doses of radiation with less targeted approaches. This treatment isn't for everyone, and particularly if a tumor is large or involving many areas in the bone, uh, but for some patients with limited disease uh, in the bones, it could be quite advantageous, both both from a practical standpoint as well as from a side effect profile standpoint. Managing pain and discomfort is one of the principal goals of radiation therapy. However, it may take time for radiation to affect uh, pain maximally. That's why sometimes one must complete the entire course of treatment before actually feeling a benefit from from treatment, and it's why it's important to maintain a regular pain pain medication regimen if needed during radiation treatment. And toward the end or following treatments, the medicines can be tapered or reduced as, as allowed. Optimal pain control is critically important during radiation therapy as well. Uh, during the delivery of radiation therapy so that when one is lying on the table receiving treatment, one is comfortable. Uh, Patient immobilization is very important, particularly when giving high-dosed, highly highly targeted treatments uh, for prostate cancer. And so it's important to be comfortable on the table when that's being delivered. Uh, Pain control is incredibly important to a radiation oncologist, and we work in multiple ways uh, to try to optimize pain control with medication, uh, with the treatment that we're delivering, um, as well as with additional um, uh, integrative medicine-type approaches. Um, I I hope this is helpful in terms of um, Uh, elucidating some of the different radiation therapy approaches and how we use radiation therapy for metastatic prostate cancer. Um, And I'm looking forward to the uh, Q&A session so that um, I can help answer any additional questions. Oh, thank thank you you so much, Dr. Kohlmeier. That was really outstanding and really, um, really explaining a lot of the advances in the delivery of radiation uh, therapy and including proton therapy and including also sometimes shorter times of getting radiation therapy, which makes such a big difference to patients. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and so um, we have some people queuing up already. So we haven't even given the instructions yet, so some people seem to know how to queue up for questions before we even tell them, tell people how to queue up for questions, people who've been on the calls before. So thank you.
And our next speaker is Mr. Andrew Chesler. Mr. Chesler is an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and he's our Men's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Mr. Chesler is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Chesler. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of the call today. Um, so I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with uh, metastatic prostate cancer or any type of cancer, of course, and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are uh, several ways we might be able to help. Uh, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Uh, cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers, and all our services are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and uh, we're experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, the physical, and the financial challenges that can arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. So asking for help if by joining a support group or contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Um, cancer care offers face-to-face uh, -face groups uh, in our local offices in the New York City uh, metropolitan area and, and New Jersey and Connecticut, as well as uh, telephone and online groups nationally. These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by prostate cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and, and understanding with others in similar situations can be a very powerful uh, experience. Group members offer encouragement, a sense of community, and that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's uh, program, uh, there's a lot of information to digest and to make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions you might want to ask to get the answers and the information you need. Please remember that you are not alone Cancer Care Services are there to help you, so feel free. Please contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE, that's 800-813-4673, or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org.org for more information about uh, our oncology social work support. And uh, thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak with you today. Carol? Thank you so much. Uh, that was really wonderful, um, Andrew. That was really terrific. Um, and thank you so much for that wonderful presentation. And um, now we have time for questions. And I'm going to ask um, our Candice to bring all of our speakers on board. And Candice will explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get to your questions, 
then at the very end of the program, I will give you resources to get your questions answered. Um, so, uh, but anyway, Candace, should we take? Let's see if we can take as many as we can for now. No, thanks. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is now open. Hi. I am almost nine years cancer-free of prostate cancer, having a prostatectomy using the da Vinci method. I was told my lymph nodes were clean. What are the chances of being diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer? And if I am diagnosed in the future with another type of cancer, God forbid, will it be treated as metastatic prostate cancer or will it be treated for the newly diagnosed cancer? Well, thank you, Emil. Good to have you on the call. And that is actually these are great questions. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Bryce if he would address your questions. There's a couple of questions in there, so I'm going to ask Dr. Bryce if he can address your question in a general way. And then, of course, we do. Uh, I'll suggest that you go back to your treating healthcare team around the specifics of your particular situation. But, uh, Dr. Bryce, if you could just give some guidelines for everyone in terms of that general question, um, if we can generalize it to a kind of question that people often think about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, when when someone has primary therapy, that is surgery or radiation for their prostate cancer, it's because the testing at the time indicates that the disease is limited to the prostate. There's nothing to suggest that it's already spread or metastatic. Now, there are details that can make a situation higher or lower risk, uh, but in general, patients who get primary therapy, about one in eight or maybe one in six will eventually recur and the rest will have been cured. So that what will happen is the surgeon or the radiation oncologist will set a follow-up schedule, they'll check a PSA, and uh, monitor for any evidence of recurrence. In terms of uh, another cancer in the future, so the diagnosis of a cancer is based not ba not on where the cancer is located, but where it originated from. What kind of tissue did it come from? So if, for example, there's a growing lymph node somewhere in the abdomen that's not a lymph node cancer, that is, we would do a biopsy of the lymph node and say the tissue that's growing this lymph node came from the colon or the prostate or you know any other organ, and that is how the cancer would be labeled. So the labeling of the cancer depends on the pathology, and it which means it really depends on getting a piece of that tissue under the microscope and letting the pathologist tell us what kind of cancer we're dealing with. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope that helps Emil, and I hope that you'll then, uh, you know, take that question back to your treating health care team. Um, so we have um, uh, some more questions for our online participants now. Um, so one question we have here is, uh, do you, so this, I'm going to direct this question to um, Dr. Bryce. And this is an online question. Do you recommend chemo and MRI or PET scan for a 78-year-old diagnosed with adenocarcinoma T3BNOMO with G9-10? PSA went from 7.5 to 15.5 in past year, spread to both seminal vesicles. CT and bone scan negative, but MD thinks test is not sensitive. Thank you. Do you want me to repeat that question, or is it? Sure. Oh, no, no, I understand. So, okay. you know, so this is one of those scenarios. There are 
high-risk features in someone uh, who has at least clinically localized disease. So it, scans that suggest no disease outside of the prostate, and yet we have Gleason 9, we have a, a high PSA that's rising. And the question is, you know, how do you treat this up front? You know, I think um, Dr. Kohlmeyer could, could certainly weigh in on it as well because uh, it's a question of is radiation therapy appropriate here. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, surgery is an option, but a lot of people, once you start talking about Gleason 9, PSA 15, 78-year-old, I think people tend to think of radiation therapy more than uh, surgery. But, but, but that's a very general statement and certainly not a hard and fast rule. In the modern era, there are more sensitive scans available, kind of next-generation imaging modalities such as PSMA-PET, choline-PET, uh, and, and you might think about doing one of those to rule out the possibility of small-volume metastatic disease which doesn't show up on a traditional scan. But I wouldn't rule out the idea of doing local therapy, and I wouldn't jump to the idea of doing chemotherapy right away. Um, even even if there were small volume metastatic disease, I, I would not be inclined towards first line chemotherapy. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Kohlmeyer, did you also want to add? Um... I, I I think Dr. Bryce sort of summarized things very nicely there. For for high risk prostate cancer, um, you know, a thorough metastatic workup um, is certainly. Um, you know, indicated. Um, we do have newer functional imaging tests uh, like PET-choline and PSMA testing. It's not available everywhere, um, and it is able to detect um, smaller volume uh, metastatic disease. Uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we use frequently uh, MRI scans, uh, MRI whole body, uh, which can look at all the bones um, and uh, detect smaller volume metastases earlier. Um, but if the image standard imaging studies are negative, um, we would typically um, recommend a hormone therapy in combination with radiation therapy um, for for uh, somebody in that situation. Excellent, thank you, Lisa. I hope these are these are helpful, and you'll of course please take this back to your training healthcare team. And another question uh, for Dr. Um, Bryce: I am on Lupron and doxetaxel to start in about five weeks. Many multiple lesions and grade 9 Gleason. What was the second option other than doxetaxel you talked about? Please explain in more detail and spell it so I can ask my MD about it. So, yeah. um, Dr. Price, if you could say a bit more about this, and then, of course, this will go back to the treating healthcare team. Thank you. Yeah, so, so this is actually a very popular question at the moment and very appropriate. So what, what we touched on just very briefly earlier is the fact that for this specific scenario of what is the best first-line treatment for someone with metastatic prostate cancer that still responds to hormones, should uh, is chemotherapy up front the right choice or should something else be considered? And, you know, the background here is that in 2015, the only real answer was we do Lupron or some equivalent, basically take away the testosterone. But then we had a series of studies come out, one, uh, one U.S. study, a British study, and there was an older French study, which taken together really demonstrated that doing this chemo-hormonal approach that, that is being proposed 
was significantly better than doing hormones alone, and that's very much the standard of care now. Now, two weeks ago, at our big annual uh, international cancer meeting, results were presented from two studies looking at the same scenario and adding abiraterone, also called Zytiga, Z-Y-T-I-G-A, in place of the chemotherapy. So that is Luprom plus Zytiga. Now, that this these two studies were also very positive and showed that adding the Zytiga early does lead to a significant advantage for patients when compared to Lupron alone, but we don't know whether docetaxel or Zytiga is the better option because these two options weren't compared to each other. So where things stand today, as of this moment in the United States, is that docetaxel is an available FDA-approved option in this scenario, and it is still very much the standard of care and what I usually do in that scenario. But we now have very promising data with Zytiga, which gives us an alternative. Having said that, the data is only two weeks old, and the FDA has not given us an approval to use Zytiga in the hormone-sensitive setting. So what that means is in all likelihood, an insurance company is not going to pay for that treatment, okay, which you know, amounts to eight or $9,000 a month. So right now, it's probably not an option that you can easily get your hands on, even though we fully expect that in the coming months the FDA will give us approval. But, you know, the FDA has to do its due diligence. They, they not only read the results that are presented, but they comb through the details of the trial and make sure they agree with the conclusions before they issue a, an approval. So, so even though Zytiga... I do think is going to be an option in the future. It's probably not an option today in terms of getting that drug paid for by insurance. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, um, a very important consideration, and but just one to look out for in terms of the approval process. Um, and do you know how the approval process can take? Um, what often is the time span for that process, or is it not? It's it's it's, it's variable. Is that? It, it, it's variable, but it's, some, it's something on the order of months, not, not days or weeks. Um, as I say, I mean, they, they actually they will get all of the raw data from the study. They'll look through the study at, at, in great detail to make sure that there are, there are no hidden signals. There's nothing that's being overlooked or that they agree with the conclusions. I mean, it's, it, it's an appropriate, uh, appropriately lengthy process just to make sure that that uh, you know the, the the data interpretation is is valid. And we have another question for you, Dr. Bryce. Um, and this is a question: I am responding well to Lupron, and my PSA my PSA measure less than one or zero. Would you suggest that I stay on my current course of treatment or add on um, the drugs mentioned earlier? Yeah, it's a, it's a great variation on the theme and. Uh, the, the, the true answer is we don't have a definitive answer to that. We don't have studies that really tell us, does the patient who's doing really well with Lupron get the benefit? Or, or perhaps is the benefit of the additional drug for those patients that only get a partial response to Lupron. We know from older data, from an old SWOG study that, that happened in the 90s, that the PSA seven months into therapy does translate into uh, risk stratification for patients. So someone who gets their PSA down to that low level, decimal levels, 
tends to do very well, whereas the patients who do poorly are those in whom the PSA doesn't go down quite as far. And we've also seen a variation on that data from the charted study, which was the original U.S. study that demonstrated the value of early docetaxel. So I would say the low PSA is encouraging. In my practice, I do not generally turn around and start these therapies later. You know, we consider it up front, but we don't really consider it six, ten months down the road or, or more. Um, you know, it, it's definitely a, it kind of a general principle in cancer care. When things are going well, you, you, you try to stick with it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I tend not to change horses midstream. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question again from one of our online participants. Um, so it's for Dr. Um, Bryce. Um, is there a list of tests to reference for precision medicine so we are able to research and advocate for this with our healthcare team? So we have a very, uh, this is a wonderful audience, I must say, great questions and so, and really wanting to advocate in any way that they can for the best care possible. So if you can address this in a, in a general way. Sure. Or? There's actually a lot of companies out there doing these tests, and um, you know, at my position at an academic center, and you know, Dr. Kohlmeyer can relate to this. I mean, we get approached by these companies uh, on a weekly basis. You know, a new test rolls out and whatnot, and and you know, ultimately, I, I don't know that there's actually any list out there with a comprehensive uh, list of all the companies that do testing, and I'm not sure it's. It's helpful to have such a list because really the, the details matter. Um, you know, I, I did simplify the concept to a tremendous degree, but there's actually a tremendous degree of complexity behind the scenes in terms of the various assays that can be run. There's small, there's medium, there's large. Uh, there's RNA, there's DNA, there's something called epigenomics, there's proteomics. And so this is a topic that, that we in the the research community, I mean, we have whole conferences dedicated to this, you know, week-long conferences to talk about just the issue of testing and of different assays. Um, so it's very much a work in progress. I, I, I would tell you that this is a very comfortable topic for oncologists nowadays. I mean, it really dovetails, the, the technology dovetails precisely with the way oncologists tend to think about cancer. And so really what we're talking about is technology that's finally caught up to the conception of cancer and the way we've been taught to think about it really for many decades now. So I think just bringing up the topic of genomics or precision oncology with your with your physician is probably enough to to stimulate the conversation. Um, and in, you know, in, in terms of advocating for any one platform, platform, you know, I I tend not to do that because. You know the the pace of change is so quick uh, that that really, you know, what is the best today is probably not going to be the best six months from now. It's really uh, an exciting time in the field. This is very exciting, and thank you. And, and Dr. Kohlmeier, does it also apply in terms of radiation therapy, in terms of uh, genomics, and because um, I. I mean, I think we're learning more and more about uh, genetic predictors of response to radiation treatment. Um, there are DNA uh, repair pathways that are uh, have been known for a long time to be impacted uh, or to influence radiation treatment uh, response. But I think as these genetic uh, mutations are 
being increasingly uncovered, I think we're learning a lot more about how um, how these mutations affect the response to radiation. So I think, again, it's an area of active interest um, and active study, and I think we'll we'll be hearing a lot more of this in the next, um, you know, within the next five years. Exciting. Thank you. And there's a question for you um, also, uh, Dr. Kohlmeier. Um, so why are bone metastases discussed so frequently for prostate cancer rather than other cancers? Prostate cancer has a particular propensity to spread to bone. Other cancers do as well, um, and radiation therapy is used for bone metastases for all different uh, histologies or types of, of, of cancers. But for um, for prostate cancer, uh, it does have a predilection to go to bone and less frequently to other organs of the body. And another question for you about the delivery of radiation. Um, what are the most common treatments for bone metastases, oral, injection, infusion, um, in terms of radiation or types of radiation that are given? So there are some infusional uh, radioactive materials that are given for uh, bone metastases. Um, these are typically uh, given uh, by nuclear medicine physicians. Um, radiation therapists or radiation oncologists also uh, often uh, deliver the external radiation, which is more focused therapy. The injectional uh, radioisotopes are typically uh, non um, non focal, so they go to all areas of the of the bone. So those are the main differences between the two, and it it just really uh, depends on the extent of bone metastases of uh, as to whether you would choose one treatment approach over the other. If you have limited bone metastases and only in a few bones, um, then then a focal approach may may be more um, attractive. However, if there's diffuse involvement to the bones and really diffuse pain, um, and the bone marrow can tolerate it, uh, the infusional radioactive isotopes uh, may be preferable. And there's a question that has come up on many of our programs, and I see it here as well. One of our online participants. Can, and this is for Dr. Kohlmeier. Um, can radioactivity after radiation therapy hurt my partner, my children? Does it, you know, is, is it, am I radioactive? Is really the question that people are really asking. Can you address that question? That's a great question and a common question that we see here in our clinics. Um, when when delivering external radiation or when receiving external radiation, um, the patient is not radioactive. The x-ray treatment is delivered in the treatment room, um, and then there's no radiation embedded in the patient at all. So there's no, um, there's no radiation safety precautions that are necessary for family and friends. Uh, with brachytherapy, which uh, is the implantation of radioactive sources into the body, uh, these can be either temporarily placed, uh, for example, with a technique called high-dose rate brachytherapy, uh, which is where we place catheters into tumors, and then through those catheters, this radiation source travels. And then after the radiation treatment delivery is, is completed, the source travels back into the machine and then um, is removed from the body. 
Um, with permanent uh, radioactive sources like a radioactive seed implant, uh, which is often given for localized prostate cancer, that is a small radioactive source that is embedded in the body. Um, and patients do require some radiation safety precautions when uh, they go home. It depends on the radioisotope that is used. There are a couple of different types of sources that are available, um, and it depends on how many sources are implanted into the body. Um, um, so it, there is some, some variation. Um, but that's the only instance when you have a permanent radioactive source uh, implanted into your body that there's any radioactive um, safe, radiation safety precautions that are needed. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's um, Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Bryce. Um, and this will probably be our last late-breaking question. Um, what are the downsides to systemic therapies for metastatic prostate cancer? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there, there are absolutely side effects from any therapy we might do. Um, there are very broad differences, though, in terms of the side effect profile of the individual drugs. I mean, in general, we have multiple categories, that is hormone therapy, chemotherapy, the injectable radiation therapy, and then as as we heard earlier, there's immunotherapy. And each of the various drugs has specific side effects that need to be taken into consideration. And often, you know, that drives how we pick a therapy for an individual patient. You know, some people are going to be more susceptible to certain side effects than others. Over the course of prostate cancer care, certainly one of the, the most common side effects or profiles of side effects is going to be from the hormone therapy. So we take away a man's testosterone, whether medically or surgically, and that's going to have impacts on his metabolism, on his muscle mass, on his bone mass, you know, overall, uh, overall slowing of the metabolism such that Truncal weight gain is common and osteoporosis is common uh, as weight shifts away from the muscles and the bones and, and really more towards abdominal fat. And then all the side effects that go along with that, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, uh, overall loss of fitness. Then with chemotherapy, we talk about suppression of the immune system, some of the visible impacts such as loss of hair, effects on fingernails. With some of the other Hormonal therapies, there are secondary effects on um, your body's hormonal balance, on blood pressure, on uh, electrolyte balance. Some of the hormonal therapies definitely have cognitive impacts. So testosterone impacts the brain um, uh, in, in, in good ways and bad, as we all know. <laughs> and, and ultimately, if you take away a man's testosterone, there can be cognitive impacts in terms of cognitive function, in terms of mood. And so, uh, you know, it, it is definitely individualized. This is a, another side to, to what I would say is, is really traditional precision medicine, which is, you know, we have to think about the individual patient. What are their individual risks? What are their values? What's acceptable? What's not? Um, and, and tailor treatment to take all those things into account. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and... Um I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing um, program today. I want to thank all of our participants who've really been 
really, uh, some of you have been listening and some of you have asked such really terrific questions that really have enhanced, enhanced our program today. And I did tell you that if you didn't get to ask your question, that we would give you resources. Even for those who ask questions, you may still have follow-up questions and things like that. So first of all, for those of you with further medical questions, certainly all of the prostate cancer organizations that you'll be getting information from, when we send you out your evaluation, you'll get a listing of all of those organizations and their websites and their and their toll-free numbers. Those are resources for all of you. But also the National Cancer Institute is a wonderful reference their um, number is 1-800-422-6237, or you can visit their website at www.cancer.gov. Um, and actually, they have a live chat feature where you can post a question, and their information specialist will then have a, a back-and-forth chat with you in terms of getting you all the information you need and all the resources you need to address your question. And that's something that's very popular both with people in the United States and internationally as well. It's a, a very nice feature that they have. Um, if, uh, on the other hand, you'd like to speak with one of our oncology social workers at Cancer Care, you certainly can contact um, us directly at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673, or you can post your question on our website at www.cancercare.org, and one of our oncology social workers will contact you to kind of help you with either practical or financial assistance or counseling services or further information that you might require. So that's um, available to you as well. And also, um, I really want to stress, of course, taking all of this back to your treating healthcare team because they are ultimately, they know all of the details of your situation and they can then adapt. So I know one of the questions said, one of the people who asked a question said, I want to hear this clearly so I can take it back to my healthcare team. And we hope you'll all, each of you will do this and use it to enhance your own care and treatment. I also want to let you know that um, we don't want anyone to leave the call today feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of the cancer care community of support, um, and you have, your, of course, your healthcare team of support too. But we don't want we know that there are times when people feel terribly alone um, in coping with metastatic uh, prostate cancer and coping with cancer in general, and that we do want you to know that you're part of a, a support mechanism here that you can access, and it's free. And um, and all of the other organizations that are prostate-specific and all the other organizations are also available to you as resources. So some of you are in very rural areas of the country, and just to know that you can just pick up the phone or visit their website and really connect with people and, and get some help and support. That's really important. Um, also, just to let you know that we have um, a part two of this program, which is for caregivers coping with a loved one's prostate cancer, which is on June 27th. Some of you have signed up for that already, but just to let you all know. And even if you yourself are your own caregiver, because I know that's come up on some of our programs, like I'm my own caregiver, I don't have somebody else doing it, it's okay to sign up for that program too because you might get some helpful information and you also might be able to ask some really good questions to help you as well. Um, and so I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may all disconnect. Everyone have a great day.